All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 58 for January 2024. Laurel Hill and Big Pharma, Philadelphia College of Pharmacy, Smith Klein and French, Wyeth Brothers, William Warner, and Robert McNeil. National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of visitors every year. Its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill West, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869 and has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West, and volunteer podcaster. Several billion dollar pharmaceutical companies got their starts in Philadelphia, not as big chemical laboratories, but as corner drug stores. Waitman, Powers, and Rosengarten made their money selling quinine to the U.S. government. James Smith and Clayton French did not know each other, and both started as neighborhood druggists. But family and business partners kept their businesses going and their names prominent after their deaths. The Wyeth brothers invented a machine that standardized the size of pills and tablets, and William Warner learned how to sugarcoat them. Warner's Pharmacopeia was distributed internationally and served as the standard reference for doctors and pharmacists for years. Ann McNeil Laboratories introduced Tylenol Elixir for children in 1955, then watched it become one of the best-selling over-the-counter meds of all time. McNeil is interred at Laurel Hill West. All the others are at Laurel Hill East, and all of them have intriguing stories you will hear in this episode of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 58, Laurel Hill and Big Pharma. William Osler is considered the father of modern American medicine. When Harvey Cushing wrote Osler's biography in 1925, he quoted him as saying, The desire to take medicine is perhaps the greatest feature which distinguishes man from animals. But we know now that bears and deer, elk, various carnivores, as well as great apes, 
consume medicinal plants in apparent attempts to self-medicate. It's even suspected that some lizards respond to a bite from a venomous snake by eating a certain root to counter the venom. So maybe we could modify Osler's aphorism and suggest that the desire to manufacture medicines is perhaps the greatest feature which distinguishes man from other animals. All early drugs were derived from natural sources, especially plants. Hippocrates wrote about the medicinal properties of willow bark in the 5th century BCE. In Babylonian writings of the 7th to 3rd centuries BCE, some 5,000 medical prescriptions have been identified that involve 1,300 drugs derived from 340 different plants. Jesuits' bark, or chinchona, was known to be effective for malaria in the mid-17th century. In the North American British colonies, physicians and apothecaries were one and the same, as they had been in England since the charter of James I in 1615. Physicians were obligated to compound their own medicines by the formulas of the Dispensatory of the College of Physicians of London, which had been founded in 1518 through a royal charter from Henry VIII. But many early colonists dispensed medicines without any special training. Some traveling preachers, in addition to comforting the sick spiritually, administered medicines, poultices and plasters, emetics, cathartics. People smoked jimson weed to treat their asthma. Catmint tea was used for colic. Sassafras root was a blood purifier. Boneset, also known as agueweed and feverwort, was used to treat tuberculosis. And tales of cures passed from tongue to tongue and village to village. In those days before the scientific method, it was trial and error. There was no difference between correlation and causation. If somebody got better after a treatment, it must have been the treatment that caused the cure. Many of these treatments appear ridiculous to us today. For instance, you could make a win or a boil go away by rubbing it with a dead toad. Or you could use the ashes from the bird head of a coal-black cat to treat cataracts. Spider's webs were used for fever. The potato, when it was first introduced to Europe, was a novelty. It sold for a high price. It was not used as a food, but as medicine. Pearls, musk and crocodile dung, unicorn horn, Egyptian mummy, sarsaparilla, all had their vogue as drug cures. Osnia was in books about drugs from the Middle Ages until after the American Revolution. Osnia was a special type of lichen which had been scraped from the skull of a criminal who had been hung in chains. In Philadelphia, Many medical practitioners made and distributed their own nostrums, which were, for the most part, placebos. Swaim's Panacea, James Vermicide, Brown's Ginger Beer. There are enough of these snake oil salesmen that they will one day get their own podcast. I'll mention the most audacious. It was probably Dr. T.W. Diot, D-Y-O-T-T. He had a large wholesale and retail drug and family medicine warehouse at the northeast corner of 2nd and Race Streets. He was not shy 
announcements of his remedies and certificates of his cures filled as much as half a page day after day in colonial publications like Aurora and the Democratic Press. Among Diat's offerings, Robertson's Vegetable Nervous Cordial, offered to treat all nervous disorders, plus GLEAT, GLEAT is gonorrhea, syphilis, barrenness, scurvy, and diseases arising from the immoderate use of tea. Robertson's infallible worm-destroying lozenges were thought safe enough even for young infants. Diot died a very rich man. He's interred in the Northern Liberties Kensington section of the city. In 1757, when John Morgan graduated from the College of Pennsylvania, he went to Europe to complete his medical education. When he returned to the colonies in 1765, he founded, quote, the first medical school attached to any college or university in this country, end quote, which is now, of course, the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. Morgan became a strong advocate to separate medical practitioners from apothecaries. Slowly, Philadelphia physicians stopped making their own medicine and began to write prescriptions for apothecaries to mix and dispense. When Morgan died in 1789, he was interred at St. Peter's Episcopal Church at 313 Pine Street. That's also the final resting place for financier Nicholas Biddle. Vice President George Mifflin Dallas, Father of the U.S. Navy Stephen Decatur, artist Charles Wilson Peale, and many other familiar names from the founding days of our country. Initially, medications were imported from London, and apothecaries sprang up in Philadelphia. Golden Pestle, Bell and Dragon, Mortar and Dove, Unicorn and Mortar, Hippocrates Head, and so on. And many struggled during the War of Independence when their supplies from London were cut off. By the end of the Revolutionary War, there were about 20 apothecary shops in Philadelphia. Not one of them would look familiar to a 21st century consumer. There were no bottles of aspirin, which was not available until 1897, or Pepto-Bismol, 1900, Benadryl. 1943, or even vitamin C, which was not synthesized until 1933. Other than quinine, about the only effective drugs were morphine for pain and chloral hydrate for sleep. Likewise, there would be no toothpaste until 1873, no deodorant until 1888, or sunscreen until 1928. There was certainly no soda fountain or lunch counter, and even the inevitable boxes of Whitman samplers did not appear until the 1910s. The neighborhood drugstore looked more like what you would now think of as a hardware store. The sale of medicines was combined with trade in paints, varnishes, oils, window glass, dye stuffs, and garden seeds. The Marshall Drugstore at the Golden Ball was the most prominent and the first apothecary to be established in the colonies. Christopher Marshall, born in Dublin in 1709, had come to Philadelphia in 1729 and purchased property on the south side of Chestnut Street, west of 2nd. 
Doctors drew their supplies from the Marshall store, and anywhere from six to 12 young male apprentices were constantly employed to mix medicines, roll pills, spread plasters, powder drugs with mortar and pestle, work screw presses, fill jars with extracts, bottle castor oil, Opadeldoc, Godfrey's cordial and British oil, and trim heifer's teats to be used on the mouths of nursing bottles long before there were rubber nipples. Among Marshall's apprentices were prominent future pharmacists like Charles Ellis, Isaac P. Morris, Dilwyn Parrish, Frederick Brown, co-founder of Laurel Hill East, who's buried in the South section. I covered Brown in a members-only podcast a couple of years ago when I talked about five generations of the Brown family. Another important pharmacy was that of John Speakman at the northwest corner of 2nd and Market. It was in the room above this store that the Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia was founded on 25 January 1812 by a group of six people. Again, during the War of 1812, Britain cut off the supply of drugs, so Americans had to figure out how to make their own. Several botanists had their own herb gardens. The first drug mill in the country, and possibly in the world, was established by Charles V. Hagner at the Falls of Schuylkill, not far from the site that would become Laurel Hill Cemetery. The mill was propelled by water power from the Schuylkill River. In 1812, Hagner took the job of grinding several tons of cream of tartar, also known as potassium bitartrate, sometimes called beeswing. It was a byproduct of winemaking. It was used both chemically and medicinally. And under the old method of hand grinding, the powdering would have required the work of several men for many months. But by using millstones, Hagner finished the job in 12 hours, and his customers declared that it was unusually white and finer than anyone had ever seen before. Hagner erected his own mill at Flat Rock in 1820. He was one of the pioneers of building up the town of Maniunk when the name changed in 1824 from Flat Rock. And Hagner thus became Philadelphia's first large-scale drug manufacturer. He is interred in a churchyard in Maniunk. Philadelphia's status as America's preeminent early drug manufacturing center was further enhanced in 1821 when the nation's first pharmacy college was founded, the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy, PCP. The city's apothecaries gathered in Carpenter's Hall and formalized their new association to, quote, guard the drug market from the introduction of spurious, adulterated, deteriorated, or otherwise mischievous articles which are too frequently forced into it, end quote. Classes began at once. Among the 68 founders were such familiar names as Charles Marshall, Samuel P. Wetherill, Frederick Brown, Charles Ellis. Four of the founders also had M.D. behind their names. Among the people not invited were purveyors of drugs known to be useless, like diot. PCP's motto was, Nasse haec omnia salus est, to know all this is health. Its preamble read in part, quote, to establish a school of pharmacy, 
provide suitable apparatus and a library, and appoint one or more lecturers as may be deemed expedient on Materia Medica, Chemistry, and Pharmacy, and on such branches of natural science as may be useful in the instruction of an apothecary. End quote. PCP is still around, but it's barely recognizable. In 1998, the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy and Science became the University of the Health Sciences, or U-Sciences, located in the University City section of West Philadelphia. And in March of 2022, it merged with St. Joseph's University, which straddles City Avenue with campuses in both Philadelphia and Lower Marion Township. One of the country's most successful early pharmaceutical companies was founded in 1818 when John Farr of London and Abraham Kunsey of Switzerland opened a shop at 12th and Arch Street as manufacturing chemists. That was way on the edge of the city at the time, all the way out to 12th Street. After Kunsey retired in 1838, Farr brought on two young men who became the giants in the pharmaceutical field, Thomas H. Powers and John Farr's nephew, William Waitman. In 1841, after a move to 9th and Brown Streets, the firm name was changed to Farr, Powers, and Waitman. After Farr's death in 1847 and interment in Laurel Hill East South Section, Powers and Waitman soon became what was probably the largest manufacturer of medicinal and other chemicals in the country. William Waitman was born in Waltham, Lincolnshire, England in 1813. He came to this country when he was 16, summoned by his uncle, John Farr. While he learned the pharmaceutical business, Waitman married Louisa Stellwagen in 1841. They had three children. The two sons became physicians and joined the company. The daughter, Anna, married Robert J.C. Walker, who joined the firm in 1893. Powers and Waitman specialized in synthesizing quinine from Chinchona, one of the few drugs at that time that was effective when used as prophylaxis against malaria. Not until 1880 would a physician discover the single-cell plasmodium parasites that cause malaria, and their carrier would not be confirmed as the Anopheles mosquito until the end of the century. Although malaria was usually not fatal, during the Civil War its symptoms debilitated whole regiments. Powers and Waitman had a near monopoly on the raw materials, which paid off handsomely. Their factory was the northeast corner of Schoolhouse Lane and Ridge Avenue in Schuylkill Falls. It's an empty field right now. Waitman wisely invested his profits in real estate and amassed a huge fortune. By the beginning of the 20th century, he was the largest individual owner of Philadelphia real estate. His net worth was in the tens of millions of dollars. That's worth more like $50 billion today. Waitman had purchased hundreds of acres of farmland where he built whole neighborhoods of middle-class housing. The architect for those was Willis G. Hale, the husband of one of his nieces. Hale also designed Waitman's home Raven Hill on Schoolhouse Lane near Henry Avenue, just a mile or so uphill from his factory. 
After Waitman's death and for much of the 20th century, Ravenhill Mansion housed Ravenhill Academy, a Catholic private school for girls whose most famous graduate is Grace Kelly, also known as Princess Grace of Monaco. Ravenhill's last class graduated in 1976, and the property was sold to Philadelphia College of Textiles and Science in 1982. Textile changed its name to Philadelphia University in 1999 and then merged with Thomas Jefferson University in 2017. Another part of Waitman's legacy, Waitman Hall, the large gymnasium attached to Franklin Field on the University of Pennsylvania campus, the home of the Penn Relays for the last hundred years. Franklin Field is, of course, named after the founder of the university. William Waitman outlived both of his sons, who died in their early 40s and are interred in the south section at Laurel Hill East. When he died at Ravenhill in 1904, his fortune was estimated at $50 million, and a battle broke out among family members over the will. But Waitman's daughter, Anna Maria Waitman Walker, had only recently buried her husband, J.R.C. Walker, who left her nearly $10 million. She was not only the rightful heir to the fortune, but to the Powers and Waitman firm. In addition to the chemical business, J.R.C. Walker had briefly owned and edited the Saturday Evening Post, as well as serving as U.S. Congressman in the 47th Congress. J.R.C. and Annie lived in John Wanamaker's former home at 1336 Walnut Street. Well, newspapers now declare that the 60-year-old widow was, quote, the richest woman in the world, end quote, and she was soon inundated with letters proposing marriage and or pleading for money. She had to hire several assistants to wade through the bags of mail that she received every day. In 1908, at age 64, Anne married Frederick Cortland Penfield, United States Austro-Hungary ambassador, at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. He was 10 years her junior, and she celebrated by giving away a million dollars to charities. They spent 14 years together before his death at age 67 in 1922. Anna Maria Waitman Walker Penfield is probably best remembered today for the fiasco of a 1929 operetta, Fioretta, which at age 84 she decided to produce on Broadway under the auspices of Earl Carroll, an impresario best known for displaying as much of the flesh of his young female stars as was legal. I have done a bonus mini-podcast, less than 25 minutes long, about Mrs. Penfield's adventures on Broadway. Look for it in the same place you found this podcast. Now, when Anna died in 1932, at age 87, her fortune had dwindled to just a few million dollars. But, contrary to urban legend, she was far from broke. The Waitmans are at a plot near the Ridge Avenue gate, next to Robin Hood Dell in Section 2 of Laurel Hill East. Powers and Waitman merged with Merck and Company in 1927, and their name disappeared. Their company records are in the archives of the Harvard Business School. Now, a German immigrant named George D. Rosengarten, 
1801-1890, was a contemporary of Waitman and Powers. Rosengarden was a highly educated member of a family which had once been wealthy, but were financially ruined by the Napoleonic Wars. He came to Philadelphia from Kessel in Hesse, Germany, at age 20, and he became an accountant in the wool business. In 1822, two Swiss chemists named Zeitler and Seitler, one with a Z and one with an S, who spoke no English, established a chemical manufacturing business in Philadelphia. But they fell into a dispute with one another, and Rosengarten, who spoke several languages, was called in to mediate between them. He settled the dispute, and the following year, 1823, he bought out Seitler. In 1824, Zeitler withdrew from the partnership, but Rosengarten continued the firm that operated now under the name of George D. Rosengarten and Company. They were in competition with Powers and Waitman in making quinine, but also various chemicals such as sulfuric ether, spirit of nitre, ammonia water. But the company rapidly expanded into morphine salts in 1832, piperine in 1833, mercurials and strychnine in 1834, and codeine and silver salts in 1836. Rosengarten's factory moved as it grew bigger, finally landing at 17th and Fitzwater Streets in 1856. From 1854, the firm became known as Rosengarten and Sons when he was joined by his two eldest sons, Samuel George, 1827-1908, and Mitchell George, 1829-1898. In 1860, they were joined by two younger sons, Harry Bennett, 1837-1921, and Adolph George, 1838-1862. When the Civil War started, Adolph was an officer with the 15th Pennsylvania Volunteer Cavalry. He was killed in action on the first day of the Battle of Murfreesboro. A fifth son, Joseph George Rosengarten, 1835-1921, became a lawyer. In 1859, he was eyewitness to the capture of John Brown at Harper's Ferry. He wrote a vivid account of this event in the June 1865 edition of Atlantic Monthly. In 1862, Joseph was commissioned a first lieutenant of the 121st Infantry and fought with distinction in the Battle of Fredericksburg. This attracted the attention of Major General John Reynolds, who gave him a position on his staff. When Reynolds was killed on the first day at Gettysburg, Rosengarten was assigned the honor of escorting Reynolds' body to its final resting place in Lancaster. After the war, he returned to the practice of law and developed close relationships with Anthony Drexel and William Pepper. He served as president of the Free Library of Philadelphia from 1899 to 1909, and he was a member of the Drexel Institute from its founding in 1892 until 1909. Joseph Rosengarten never married. He died in 1921 at age 85. George Rosengarten acquired a significant interest in the Pennsylvania Railroad, and at the time of his death in 1890, he was one of the wealthiest men in Philadelphia. In 1905, the firm amalgamated into the Powers Waitman Rosengarten Company. 
The Rosengarten plot at Laurel Hill East in Section W holds the remains of all the family members that I told you about. In 1830, a 25-year-old man with the name John K. Smith opened a small apothecary shop on North 2nd Street. Eleven years later, his brother George joined him, and they formed John K. Smith and Company. The business grew because it had a reputation for fine, pure products. It became a leading wholesaler in the city. When John K. Smith died at age 40, In 1845, he was laid to rest in Section G of Laurel Hill East, marked with a modest obelisk. George continued to build the company's reputation. He was known to cater to the exact requirements of physicians, and he used methods that were quite advanced. George took orders from all over the East Coast. And by 1855, he had not only expanded the store, but had opened a second shop at 149 North 3rd. In 1865, an ambitious 19-year-old bookkeeper named Malin N. Klein, 1846-1909, joined the business. Klein soon moved into sales and took classes at PCP so he could understand the business better. Within 10 years, he became a partner. And the name changed again, this time to Smith Klein and Company. Klein is interred in Wayne, Pennsylvania. The third partner, Clayton French, 1824 to 1890, had apprenticed to Dr. Edward S. Wilcox at the northwest corner of 11th and Callow Hill. When his preceptor died, French formed a partnership with William Campbell, but that dissolved after one year. Clayton French then partnered with another Philadelphian to form French and Richards Wholesale Druggists, and they prospered for the next 46 years until French's death in 1890. Clayton French had married Catherine Ann Hansell, and they had four children. The oldest son, James Hansell French, 1851 to 1880, whom everyone called Hansell, attended West Point Military Academy and was killed in a battle with the Apaches under the leadership of Chief Victorio in the San Mateo Mountains of the New Mexico Territory. I spoke about him in podcast All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories number 51, Killed by Indians. The other son, Harry Banks French, 1857 to 1925, joined the firm. Although Clayton French was one of the founders of the Philadelphia Drug Exchange in 1861, he did not limit himself to the chemical and pharmaceutical industry. In 1861, he was a partner in the firm of Bailey and Company, which in 1879 was to become Bailey Banks and Biddle, one of the top jewelry firms in the nation. Clayton was also a director of the Guarantee Trust and Safe Deposit Company, the Pennsylvania Warehousing Company, the Pennsylvania Salt Manufacturing Company, and the Philadelphia Board of Trade. In 1891, the year after Clayton's death, French Richards and Company was absorbed by Smith Klein and Company and became Smith Klein and French, which became a 20th century pharmaceutical juggernaut that introduced many new drugs to the American public. Benzedrine in 1929, Dexedrine in 1944, Thorazine in 1952, 
Tagamet in 1976. They introduced the potassium-sparing diuretic diazide in 1960. Most diuretics around this time caused the body to lose potassium. But the combination of direnium and hydrochlorothiazide overcame this problem. As SKNF expanded, it moved to new quarters on Cherry Street. Then in 1948, it moved to even bigger quarters at 1530 Spring Garden Street, the former home of Baldwin Locomotives. In the 1970s, it moved to property in King of Prussia. In 1982, SKF, now SmithKline RIT, acquired Allergan, an eye and skin care business, and merged with Beckman Instruments Incorporated, a company specializing in diagnostics and measurement instruments and supplies. And now it became SmithKline Beckman. The next merger? was with the Beecham Group in 1989 to form SmithKline Beecham. And then in 2000, SmithKline Beecham merged with Glaxo Welcome to form GlaxoSmithKline, known to investors as GSK, the 10th largest pharmaceutical company in the world, with a market capitalization of an estimated $90 billion. Many years ago, GSK, which still maintains its U.S. headquarters in Philadelphia, donated a plaque to Laurel Hill Cemetery, which marks the simple burial place of John K. Smith, the man they consider their founder. It's not far from the final resting place of Revolutionary War hero Dr. Hugh Mercer. Clayton French, whose name got chopped from the company during all the mergers, is interred with his family, including his son Hansel, in a beautiful cradle grave at Laurel Hill East, Section J-112. But it is humbling for me to stand at the simple gravesite of John K. Smith and realize what grew out of that small drugstore that he opened on North 2nd Street. In 1860, while giving a talk before the Massachusetts Medical Society, Oliver Wendell Holmes, 1809-1894, said, I firmly believe that if the whole Materia Medica could be sunk to the bottom of the sea, it would be all the better for mankind and all the worse for the fishes. He was almost certainly correct. At the beginning of the Civil War, there were still more than a dozen pharmacies in Philadelphia, mostly clustered in what we now call Old City. Henry C. Blair II, 1816-1862, who's buried at Woodland Cemetery, learned the business from Franklin R. Smith at the corner of 8th and Walnut. Two years later, he purchased the business from Smith, and it became one of the most prosperous drugstores in the city. Upon his death, the business passed to Blair's sons, Andrew H. Blair II, 1841 to 1898. He's interred at Laurel Hill West in the Bryn Mawr section. And Henry C. Blair III, 1844 to 1901. He's interred at Laurel Hill West in an unmarked grave in the river section. All of the Blairs graduated from PCP. Blair's Drugstore had 24 rules and regulations for its employees to follow. Here are a few of them. Rule number one, store to be open promptly at 7 a.m. and closed at 10 p.m. Saturdays, 10.30 p.m. Sundays, 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. 
Rule number three, during business hours, all hands must be on their feet and employed in waiting on customers or some other store duty. Number six, never put up an article unless you are certain you are right. Rule number eight, every person entering the store, whether rich or poor, infant or adult, white or colored, must be treated with courtesy and kindness. Rule number 12, every clerk is expected to become a graduate of the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy, and time will be allowed during third and fourth years for attending the lectures. Number 14, students need but few social acquaintances, and they should be very select. While the occasional visit of a well-behaved young friend will be allowed, lounging in the store will not be tolerated. Rule number 15. Each junior clerk will have at his disposal an afternoon and evening every week from 1 p.m. until 10.30 p.m., and these privileges will not be interfered with unnecessarily. Rooms are furnished for all clerks in the store building. And... Regulation number 17, each clerk will be allowed two weeks vacation each year. There were two young men who worked for Blair, the brothers, John and Frank Wyeth. They were sons of a pharmacist named Francis. After John Wyeth graduated from PCP, he became Blair's partner, leading to the firm of Blair and Wyeth. When that partnership dissolved in 1860, John, 1834 to 1907, buried at Laurel Hill East in Section X, and Frank, 1836-1913, Laurel Hill East Section F, the Wyeth brothers opened their own drugstore with a small research lab at 1410 Walnut Street. It was called John Wyeth and Brother. They specialized in elixirs, and the business rapidly grew. In 1862, on the suggestion of many of their doctor clients, they began to manufacture large quantities of commonly ordered medicines so they would be ready for purchase at any time without having to wait for a technician to compound them. They were successful, and in 1864, they began supplying medicines and beef extract to the Union Army during the Civil War. In 1872, an employee of Wyeth, Henry Bauer, 1833-1896, he's buried over at Woodland Cemetery, developed one of the first compressed tablet machines in the United States. This established the mass production of medicines with unprecedented precision and speed. It was successful, and the Wyeth brothers won multiple awards at the Centennial Exhibition. The Wyeth Brothers' 1882 catalog of, quote, elegant pharmaceutical preparations, end quote, lists a wide array of compressed pills, effervescing salts, elixirs, lozenges, suppositories, and even bottled cannabis powder, which, according to its label, was to be taken with hot brandy. In 1883, Wyeth opened its first international facility in Montreal, Canada, and began vaccine production. At the time, there was only one effective vaccine, smallpox, introduced by Englishman Edward Jenner in 1796. In 1885, Frenchman Louis Pasteur introduced a rabies vaccine. 
When a fire destroyed their Walnut Street store in 1889, they sold the retail business and focused on mass production of drugs. In 1899, they underbid both Powers and Waitman and Rosengarten to produce quinine. They were awarded the contract to supply quinine to the United States military during the Spanish-American War. In 1905, the Wyeths acquired the property at 1128 South 11th Street, which had previously been known as the Temple of the Congregation of the House of the Lords. It had belonged to the religious cult of Jehovah Elamar Merameta, whom I discussed at length in Biographical Bites from Bala Number 16, A Cult of One's Own. John Wyeth died in 1907 at age 73. He was interred in Section X at Laurel Hill East, just a few feet from the circus king, Adam Forepaugh. He had married Sarah Bell Stewart in 1861. They had two sons, one of whom died in infancy. The other son, Stewart, who had been given his mother's maiden name, became the company's president. Stuart Wyeth, born in Philadelphia in 1862, prepared for college at St. Paul's School, Concord, near Hampshire, which had been established in 1856, and he entered Harvard with the class of 1884. He next studied law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, where he received his degree of LLB. He then traveled and studied legal, financial, and economic questions in various parts of the world. And in 1893, he joined John Wyeth and Son Incorporated. The Whitehall building in downtown Manhattan became the corporation's first headquarters. Global sales increased due to the popularity of Wyeth's Kalinos brand of toothpaste. Stuart Wyeth divided his time between Philadelphia and Paris, but he never married. When he died at age 67 in 1929 at his home at 1830 South Rittenhouse Square, he was interred in the Wyeth family plot at Laurel Hill East. As he had no living relatives, he left controlling interest in the company to his alma mater, Harvard University. In 1930, Wyeth purchased Anison, an aspirin-based pain reliever promoted for the treatment of tension headaches. It quickly became the company's flagship product. One year later, Harvard sold Wyeth to American Home Products for $2.9 million. That's million, not billion, million. When the United States entered World War II, Wyeth shipped typical wartime drugs such as sulfa bacteriostatics, blood plasma, typhus vaccine, quinine, and atabrine tablets. It was during this time that Wyeth launched its penicillin research facility, one of 22 companies selected by the government to produce this new miracle drug. It was in 1943 that Wyeth merged with Ayrst, McKenna, and Harrison Limited of Canada, and with this merger came Premarin, the world's first conjugated estrogen medicine. The name Premarin tells you literally the source of this estrogen. It was derived from pregnant mare's urine. Premarin was a flagship product for Wyeth until 2002, when preliminary results from the Women's Health Initiative linked it to a number of negative effects, including an increased risk for breast cancer and sales subsequently fell worldwide.
But in the 1950s, Wyeth's new product line exploded. They launched Disulfiram under the commercial name Antabuse, a drug for the treatment of alcohol abuse. Next came the antihistamine Promethazine, commercial name Phenergan. The anticonvulsant Primidone, commercial name Mycelene, was introduced in 1954. Other drugs introduced during this time, isosorbide dinitrate, Isodil, a vasodilator for the treatment of angina, Drivax, a freeze-dried smallpox vaccine, and Norgestrel combined with estrogen ethanyl estradiol as overall, an oral contraceptive pill. Wyeth became a leading U.S. vaccine provider after they supplied polio vaccine for the SOC trials. During this time, the corporate headquarters moved to Radnor, Pennsylvania, where they remained until 2003. In 1967, the World Health Organization initiated the Global Smallpox Eradication Program and approached Wyeth to develop a better injection system for smallpox vaccines, which could be used in the field. Wyeth waived its patent royalties on its innovative bifurcated needle, which was used in the delivery of more than 200 million smallpox vaccines per year and eventual total eradication of the disease. Wyeth made history in 1984 with the introduction of Advil, the first non-prescription ibuprofen in America, as well as the most famous prescription to over-the-counter switch in history. Wyeth and Ayerst merged to form Wyeth Ayerst Laboratories, thus strengthening and consolidating Wyeth's pharmaceutical operations. In the late 1980s, Wyeth acquired the animal health businesses of Bristol Myers and Park Davis. Wyeth also acquired A.H. Robbins, makers of Robitussin, Chapstick, Dime Tap, and the later problematic Delcon Shield. In 1993, Premarin became the number one prescribed drug in the United States. Effexor, the venlafaxine hydrochloride, was the first serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, SNRI, used in the treatment of clinical depression, generalized anxiety disorder, and social anxiety disorder. The same year, Wyeth founded the Women's Health Research Institute, the only institute in the pharmaceutical industry entirely dedicated to research in women's health. The institute conducts trials in menopausal issues, endometriosis, contraception, and more. In 1994, Wyeth acquired American Cyanamid and its subsidiary Letterly Laboratories. This acquisition brought the Letterly Praxis vaccines and Centrum, the leading U.S. multivitamin. Wyeth's sales topped $13 billion in 1995. Two years later, Premarin became the company's first brand to reach the blockbuster status, a billion dollars in sales. In 1997, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration requested that Wyeth withdraw its controversial diet drug fenfluramine from the market after several reports of death and other health problems associated with the drug combination that was known as fenfen. In 1998, American Home Products came very close to merging with SmithKline Beecham, which pulled the plug on the estimated $70 billion merger. 
1994, another potential merger. This one with Monsanto Company fell through. That would have been a $34 billion merger of equals. But on 15 October 2009, the final acquisition papers were signed, making Wyeth a wholly owned subsidiary of Pfizer and completing a $68 billion deal. The name is still out there. In 2012, Nestle bought the infant nutrition division of Pfizer and renamed it Wyeth Nutrition. The Wyeth brand is still owned by Pfizer and is all over the world, marketing its products in more than 140 countries, and it has manufacturing facilities on five continents. Pfizer's worldwide sales in 2022 were just a little over $100 billion. Well, winter is here, and the cemetery gates are now closing at 5 p.m., rather than 7 p.m. Public events have slowed down at both cemeteries for the month of January. There are still a few things I can tell you about, though. Hotspots and Storied Plots, the general introductory tour for Laurel Hill East, will take place on Saturday, January 13th, and Friday, January 26th, both at 10 a.m. Sacred Spaces and Storied Places, the introductory tour for Laurel Hill West, will be Saturday the 27th at 10 a.m. On Sunday the 28th, Laurel Hill will celebrate Tuba Shavat, the Jewish New Year for trees, from 1 to 3 p.m. After a short tour of Laurel Hill West Wintry Arboretum, in which you will examine barks, buds, and berries, you'll also learn about the historical, agricultural, and spiritual origins of Tuba Shavat, and how it is celebrated around the world today. Afterwards, indoors, enjoy Comuna Cellar wines along with fruits significant to the holiday. This event is presented with the Weizmann National Museum of American Jewish History. Tickets are necessary for this. Get someone a membership in Friends of Laurel Hill. Get yourself a membership for as little as $25. Then you can take advantage of gift shop discounts, tour discounts, members-only gatherings, and much more. Uh, We now have many copies of Haunted Philadelphia available in the gift shop. Uh, The first batch sold out rather quickly, but they have been replenished. Go to laurelhillphl.com slash membership for more information about belonging. You can also arrange a private tour for family and friends at Laurel Hill East or Laurel Hill West. You get to choose the day and the hour. You can even request a specific tour guide if you like. For more information about private tours, go to laurelhillphl.com slash plan dash your dash visit slash tours slash If you are a fan of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, be sure to tell your friends about it. And leave us a five-star rating or even a review at Apple Podcasts. For a niche podcast, I've got to say we're doing okay. We've had more than 41,000 downloads in just a little less than three years. But I would love to see that grow. Let's see if we can get to 50,000 downloads by the middle of the year. Thanks again for listening. Let's get back to the January podcast. 
And if GlaxoSmithKline and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals weren't enough for you, we've still got William R. Warner to talk about. Born on Christmas Day in Maryland in 1836. He was very young when his parents died and he had to make a living on his own. Warner acquired a rudimentary education, which was later supplemented by a short course at Easton Academy, Maryland, after which he joined Chamberlain and Anderson, druggists of Easton. He devoted all his spare time to study, as he had easy access to a large library of scientific works. He soon was proficient in natural history, geology, botany, and paleontology. And while only 18 years old and with no formal college education, Warner wrote several scientific articles for the Easton Gazette. Warner moved to Philadelphia and graduated from PCP in 1856. And while giving lectures throughout Pennsylvania on various chemistry topics, he continued his studies in both chemistry and pharmacy. His first shop was in Kensington at 2nd and Girard. It was here that he perfected the process of sugar-coating pills and tablets to partially relieve the bitter taste of most of the chemicals he was using. His method caught on, and Warner's original machine is now in the Smithsonian Institute. He initially wholesaled the pills in bulk to the team of Bullock and Crenshaw, who retailed them under their own name. In 1866, Warner purchased the wholesale drug business of John C. Baker and moved to 154 North 3rd Street. Here, in a multi-story building, Warner advertised reliable and permanent sugar-coated pills and granules manufactured by William R. Warner and Company, importers, factors, and jobbers of drugs, chemicals, perfumery, pharmaceutical preparations, and specialties." End quote. As his stock expanded, he advertised even more. Pure iodoform, elixirs, and fluid extracts. Fluid extract ergot, fluid extract cotton root B, and so on. Ten years later, in the centennial year, he purchased and moved to a multi-story building at 1228 Market Street. His reputation had spread and branches soon opened in London, England, and New York City, followed by branches in Chicago, New Orleans, Atlanta, St. Louis, Denver, Portland, Oregon, and Minneapolis. He published a guide called William R. Warner's Therapeutic Reference Book for Physicians, which went through multiple printings. Warner's guide started with the basics, with an explanation. The amount of each drug in a prescription is expressed in grains, scruples, drams, ounces, and pounds. If it be a liquid, in minims, drams, ounces, pints, and gallons. Just as an aside, a wee dram in Scotland is equivalent to 35 milliliters, just a little more than an ounce. Warner also explains how to write a prescription, although he makes no mention of physicians' penmanship. He then gives a catalog of hundreds of potential medications, along with both the apothecary weight and the metric system weight for adults, plus the drug's physiological action. Cannabis is listed as antispasmodic, antineuralgic, and hypnotic. Following cannabis, cantharis, listed as Spanish fly, quote, internally is a stimulant 
the genital organs, end quote. Usnia, the lichen scraped from the skull of a criminal, is no longer listed. I spent more than an hour leafing through this book, which I found online from archive.org. Almost every compound listed is followed by the name of the physician who first proposed it. Ringer, Brown Sequard, Morel McKenzie, Stille, one of the founders of the American Medical Association, RAF Penrose, who's buried in Laurel Hill South. It reads like a who's who of 19th century medicine. In the early 1880s, the manufacturing part of his business had increased so much that he took larger quarters, and the six-story Warner Building was erected at the corner of Broad and Wallace Streets. Initially, this was only laboratory space, but after the Market Street store was destroyed by fire in 1899, everything was moved to the new Warner Building. On 4 April 1901, William R. Warner died at his home at 1306 North Broad Street at age 64 after three weeks of illness. He was survived by three sons, William R. Jr., Pearson, and Charles. He was interred in Section 10 of the south part of Laurel Hill East the next day. At the time of his death, he left behind a personal collection of portraits of all the world's great scientists and pharmacists. He also claimed a lineage that included George Washington and had accumulated more than 100 portraits of the great man. His art collection was sold at auction in May, and I cannot determine where it ended up. Meanwhile, in the Midwest, Jordan Wheat Lambert was launching Lambert Pharmacal Company in St. Louis. Lambert's main product was Listerine Antiseptic, introduced in 1879, but marketed only to medical professionals. Lambert soon realized that Listerine had huge consumer marketing potential. In 1914, he began to mass-market Listerine through an advertising campaign that is still used as a case model in business schools. Another St. Louis-based company, Pfizer Chemical, bought William R. Warner in 1908, kept the Warner name, and expanded the company through acquisition. The paths of Warner's company and Lambert's firm intersected in 1955, with the creation of the Warner-Lambert Pharmaceutical Company. Warner-Lambert grew through acquisition. One of the earliest came in 1962, when the company bought the American Chickle Company, a New York City-based company that was among the world's largest producers of gums and mints. American Chickle's flagship brand name, Adams, was well known around the world, and its products included dentine, chiclets, and trident gums, and certs and chlorets mints. In 1965, Warner Lambert purchased a small cough tablet company in the United Kingdom and expanded the brand name known as Hall's Mentholyptus to global stature. In 1970, Warner Lambert acquired the Schick Wet Shave product line from Eversharp. This company had been founded in 1929 by Jacob Schick, whose magazine-loading razor was inspired by the repeating rifle. In 1970, Warner Lambert acquired Park Davis, which had once been the world's largest drug maker. Park Davis traces its history back to 1866, when Hervey Park 
and George Davis formed a small company in Detroit, Michigan. They pioneered the standardization of medications and built the first modern pharmaceutical laboratory. They also developed the first organized systematic method of clinically testing new drugs. In the first half of the 20th century, Park Davis introduced a number of breakthrough products, including the first bacterial vaccine, a pure form of adrenaline, and dilantin phenytoin, the first widely available treatment for epilepsy and seizure. After World War II, Park Davis popularized a number of anti-infectives, developed the sock polio vaccine for widespread use, and introduced a new line of oral contraceptives. In the 1980s, the Warner-Lambert grew again with the introduction of the first effective cholesterol-lowering agent, Lopid. In 1993, Warner-Lambert acquired Wilkinson's sword and combined it with shit and created the world's second-largest wet-shave business. And then, in 1996, Warner-Lambert entered into a co-marketing agreement with Pfizer on Lipitor, atorvastatin, a new entry into the statin class of lipid-lowering agents. Discovered by Park Davis Research and introduced in 1997, Lipitor is the largest-selling pharmaceutical of any kind worldwide. In 2000, Pfizer acquired Warner-Lambert, bringing together two of the fastest-growing companies in the pharmaceutical industry and adding to Pfizer's global strengths and rich heritage. And once again, here's a man who opened a small drugstore in Philadelphia and expanded it, and when he died, he had absolutely no idea that his name would still be attached to a pharmaceutical giant more than a century later. On Monday, 17 March, 1879, St. Patrick's Day, 23-year-old Robert McNeil bought a drugstore complete with fixtures, inventory, and a soda fountain at Front and Howard Streets in the heart of the Mill District of Kensington for $167. The first day sales from his fledgling business were $5.79. After graduating from PCP three years earlier, McNeil, there's no A there's only one L, M-C-N-E-I-L, had worked as an apprentice for pharmacist John B. Ferguson, 1832 to 1893, Laurel Hill East, Section 16. Robert's father, also named Robert, came from Agadawi Parish in County Antrim, Northern Ireland, and had settled in Philadelphia when he emigrated to the United States. The McNeils were so-called blue-stocking Presbyterians. No work on Sundays, not even studying, unless it was the Bible. Robert McNeil's pharmacy rapidly became known as the largest drug and prescription store uptown and served loyal neighbors and physicians while he earned a reputation as a superior pharmacist. He used his signature blown in the sides of his bottles as a means of assuring customers a product of quality that was up to the McNeil standard. Robert married Mary Hubbard Erweiler, and in 1883 they had a son whom they named Robert Lincoln McNeil. 
As he grew up, everyone called him Lincoln. Lincoln was a 1900 graduate of the Northeast Manual Training School of Philadelphia, and then he got his degree from the University of Pennsylvania. He became a member of the Union League and the St. Andrews Society. In 1900, Robert moved his store to a four-story building at Front and York Streets. There was now space for a sick room supply department, a truss and bandage fitting room, plus research and manufacturing laboratories. In 1904, 19-year-old Lincoln joined his father. In 1914, the father-son teams of pharmacists became the firm of Robert McNeil, and they set up a separate manufacturing site on Reese Street. It was a partnership firm, not a corporation. It was also in 1914 that Lincoln married Grace Fanny Slack, daughter of the Reverend Henry Levi Slack of Connecticut. Lincoln and Grace had three sons, Robert Lincoln Neal Jr., Henry Slack McNeil, and Phelps Erweiler McNeil, who died shortly after birth. Kensington was a good section of the city for a family pharmacy. Nearby employers included the Diston Saw Works, the Pearson Box Company, and the Stetson Hat Company, which even had its own hospital. I told you about John B. Stetson in All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories Number 3, Easterners of the Old West. The company grew. Lincoln took over the manufacturing part of the business and quickly outgrew the Reese Street property, which forced a move to 17th and Cambria, so the firm could have bigger vats and a larger organization. Patriarch Robert continued to run the drugstore end of the business until he had a stroke and retired in 1925. In 1933, he died in his apartment in the Fairfax, an apartment building designed by African-American architect Julian Abele, located at Wayne and Carpenter. He was initially buried at Laurel Hill East. The family sold the drugstore and changed the name of the company to McNeil Laboratories, with R. Lincoln McNeil as president. It employed about 65 workers. The firm was comfortably providing local hospitals and physician prescribers with most of their drug needs. Robert Lincoln McNeil went on to become one of only two men who served as president of the American Pharmaceutical Manufacturers from 1927 to 29 and the American Drug Manufacturers Association 1948 to 1950. They were forerunners of the present Pharmaceutical Manufacturers Association. In 1961, he received the Proctor's Medal Award of the Philadelphia Drug Exchange, quote, for more than half a century of leadership and achievement in the pharmaceutical industry. Lincoln's eldest son, Robert Lincoln McNeil Jr., grew up in the business. He was born in 1915 at his grandmother's house in Bethel, Connecticut, where his mother had gone so she could avoid the heat of summer when she delivered him. The family lived at 8917 Creffield Street in Chestnut Hill. From kindergarten through second grade, he attended a private school run by the Mrs. Cameron in the Queens Lane section of Germantown. He was exceedingly bright, and he tested out of third grade so that he entered Germantown Academy in the fourth grade. His math training was especially good. 
While he was in school, he worked as an errand boy for the family business, and he was only paid about half of what outsiders were earning for the same job. He was required to work on evenings and Saturday mornings all through high school. It was also his job to send bills to physician customers and to take any checks collected during the day to the Kensington Trust Company branch at Broad and Allegheny. After many family discussions, Robert Jr. decided to apply to a non-Pennsylvania Ivy League. And because his grandfather had a doctorate from Yale, he went to New Haven. On the college boards, he passed an advanced French examination with a score high enough to satisfy Yale's language requirement, and he got 100% on the geometry boards. While at Yale, he was very interested in extracurricular activities. He won three varsity letters, he served as president of his class and president of the student council. His primary studies were in biochemistry and biology, and he even audited a gross anatomy class at the medical school during his senior year. As Robert Jr. finished his studies at Yale, he had doubts about joining the family business as there was no research department, and it was research that he wanted to do for a career. When his father got sick, he enrolled in the four-year program at Philadelphia College of Pharmacy where he passed the courses for first and second year simultaneously and then combined his junior and senior years to complete a four-year degree in just two years. Plus, his degree was awarded with distinction. And on the side, he enrolled in Temple University's Graduate School of Pharmacy. As the first member of McNeil's research department, Robert's primary focus was to analyze and trim the product line from 1,400 items down to 100 quality items. Robert Jr.'s younger brother, Henry S. McNeil, joined the company in 1939. He was also a Yale graduate, but his degree was in applied economic science. Henry focused on sales, and he converted the company's business from direct sales to detailing physicians. This was a new business approach that turned out to be very successful. And now there were McNeil representatives all over the country promoting its products. And despite the depression, the company did quite well. Robert Jr. lived at home for many years. When his mother was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, he shared her care with his father. Eventually, Lincoln and Grace moved to presidential apartments at City Avenue and Presidential. Grace died on 20 July 1967. And after Lincoln's death from a heart attack at Chestnut Hill Hospital on 20 September 1967, just two months after his wife, he was interred in the family plot at Laurel Hill East. During World War II, Robert Jr., who was in his late 20s at the time, talked to the draft board about where he would be most useful. They decided it would be as a civilian chemist. He had been teaching at PCP, but he gave that up when the United States entered the war. McNeil Pharmaceuticals made its name and its fortune from the pain and fever reliever Tylenol. Acetaminophen was first described in the chemical literature in 1878, the year before Robert bought his Kensington drugstore. In 1886, two French physicians, Dr. Arnold Kahn and Paul Hepp, treated the patient who suffered from intestinal parasites. 
they had been investigating naphthalene for its beneficial effects. And when their supply ran out, they ordered more from a local pharmacy. An inexperienced pharmacist mistakenly filled the prescription with acetanilid, which, although discovered in 1852 by French chemist Charles Gerhardt, was still an obscure drug. Kahn and Hepp found that acetanilid caused a marked fever reduction in one of their patients, and they started selling doses of it under the name antifebrin. They also noticed that it had analgesic properties and reduced pain. But a small number of patients turned blue after taking it because they developed methemoglobinemia. It wasn't until 1899 that German chemist Karl Morner learned that acetanilid is metabolized in the body to another active ingredient. And 10 years later, another German chemist named Joseph Freyer von Mehring first synthesized paracetamol, which later was known as acetaminophen. And he confirmed that this was effective against pain and fever. The name paracetamol was taken from the chemical name, N-acetylparaaminophenol. Acetaminophen also borrowed from the parent compound for its chemical name, using acet from acetyl, amino, and phen from aminophenol, hence acetaminophen. For convenience, acetylparaaminophenol was shortened to APAP. But again, cases of methemoglobinemia were reported, and the use of this new drug was limited. And another drug called phenacetin became far more popular. Now, later, it was discovered that the paracetamol was probably contaminated with some 4-aminophenol from which it had been synthesized. Since von Mehring's reputation was so solid, no one bothered to repeat his experiment for nearly 50 years when American chemists confirmed that APAP was synthesized in the body from phenacetin. Phenacetin, about that time, was being discovered to cause kidney damage, and eventually it was taken off the market. It's been off the market for decades now. In the late 1940s, McNeil Laboratories had defined as a new product objective an analgesic which would be different, available for marketing and prescription only. In 1951, the safety and efficacy of acetaminophen was described at a scientific symposium in New York City sponsored by the Institute for the Study of Analgesic and Sedative Drugs. According to the research reported at this symposium, acetaminophen was found to be as effective as aspirin for pain relief and fever reduction, but without the side effects of aspirin, such as stomach irritation, gastrointestinal bleeding, and impairment of the blood to clot normally. Convinced of the safety and efficacy of the drug, McNeil began its own extensive research on acetaminophen, which confirmed the findings reported at the symposium. In the spring of 1955, McNeil introduced Tylenol Elixir for Children, the company's first single-ingredient acetaminophen product. The name, once again, was derived from the chemical name, TYL from acetyl and enol from phenol. The outstanding success of Tylenol was attributed to a unique marketing strategy to inform healthcare professionals of the undesirable effects of aspirin 
and ask them to recommend Tylenol to patients susceptible to these effects. It was packaged in a bright red box, which had a picture of a fire truck with the slogan for little hotheads printed on it. It was marketed directly to physicians and pharmacists as a prescription product. Tylenol Elixir received widespread acceptance as a safe and effective alternative to aspirin for the temporary relief of pain and fever. Its success encouraged McNeil to develop other Tylenol products. Money earned from Tylenol and an earlier product, Butazol, allowed the company to expand even further and open research labs in Fort Washington, just a few miles outside of Philadelphia. By now, there were about 300 employees inside and 300 employees outside, usually detail men to drugstores and physicians. Fort Washington was also the home for another Philadelphia-based pharmaceutical giant, Rohrer, makers of Maalox, whose founders are not interred at Laurel Hill. Robert Lincoln McNeil Jr. formally became the chief executive officer of McNeil on 1 January 1956. In 1958, McNeil was approached by the giant firm Johnson & Johnson about becoming one of their family of companies. Johnson & Johnson was a publicly traded company with annual sales of $330 million. By then, McNeil was manufacturing and selling its products in 20 countries. It was still family-owned, but Robert Jr. was exhausted after 20 straight years of building the company, evenings and weekends included. The sale took place, and the McNeil brothers were given $33 million of Johnson & Johnson stock. Five months later, Robert Jr.'s brother Harry had a heart attack, and he was never again an active executive in the company. In 1961, McNeil submitted an application for over-the-counter sales of Tylenol tablets, and it was approved. Two years later, after approval from the FDA, Tylenol with codeine was approved in three strengths. All had 300 milligrams of APAP, but Tylenol 2 had 15 milligrams, or a quarter grain, of codeine, and Tylenol number 3 had 30 milligrams, or a half grain, of codeine. Within two years, Tylenol number 3 was McNeil's best seller, and was only the eighth product to reach a million prescriptions per month. Not long after the introduction of Tylenol, Robert Jr. met the love of his life, Nancy McKinney. She was 11 years younger than him, and had been widowed at a young age. Her first husband, Harold Farquhar Jones, whom she married in 1949, had died in 1951 at age 25 from hemorrhage during surgery. Nancy had worked as a fashion model. Robert knew Nancy's father and brother through the St. Andrews Society. Their marriage lasted 56 years until his death. Robert Jr. started tapering off from his work in the mid-1960s. He became more involved in civic and charitable works. His philanthropy was legendary. His most important group was the Barra Foundation, B-A-R-R-A. It was named after the McNeil clan's ancient home off the west coast of Scotland. 
still very active. Recent grants included $400,000 in September 2023 to the Drexel University Dornsife School of Public Health. $400,000 also in September 2023 for Research for Action, a means of improving public education in Philadelphia. In June 2023, the Barra Foundation donated $500,000 to provide monthly guaranteed income and voluntary support services to pregnant Philadelphians throughout their pregnancy and through their baby's first year of life. Other projects can be found on their website. In 2003, the Barra Foundation and Robert L. McNeil Jr pledged $6 million to the University of Pennsylvania to build a permanent home for the McNeil Center for Early American Studies of the School of Arts and Sciences and to provide a permanent endowment for the school's operational costs. The McNeil Building is located at 3718 Locust Walk on the Penn Campus. The McNeils were passionate collectors of early American art, and much of their collection is now on display at the Philadelphia Museum of Art's Center for American Art. A 2007 gift allowed the museum to assemble the most comprehensive collection of works by Philadelphian Charles Wilson Peale. PMA's galleries of early American art are named the Robert L. McNeil Jr. Galleries. The McNeil Science and Technology Center at the University of the Sciences, formerly PCP, was completed in 2006. It's located on the South Campus, adjacent to the new Athletic Recreation Center. There are 48 offices for faculty and staff and workspaces for 36 graduate students, plus a state-of-the-art auditorium that seats 400. The McNeils also made generous donations to the Philadelphia Zoo. The McNeil Avian Center Live Cam allows you to keep track of many of the birds in the zoo's collection. McNeil's generosity even trickled down to community hospitals. In the early 1990s, when I was working at Brandywine Hospital in Coatesville, which, alas, has closed, one of the defibrillators in our emergency department was donated by a fourth-generation O'Neill after we had cared for a family member. In May of 2003, Robert J. McNeil, Jr., the mastermind behind the development and distribution of over-the-counter Tylenol, died at age 94 in his home in Winmore, Pennsylvania, leaving behind his wife, Nancy, two daughters, two sons, and 11 grandchildren. Nancy outlived him by 19 years, and she died in January of 2022 at age 96. Her obituary in The Inquirer was very flattering, and I have truncated it here. It says, quote, A statuesque former fashion model, Mrs. McNeil was known for her classic style, devilish sense of humor, and her extensive philanthropic endeavors. She was very artistic in her own right, designing custom, intricate, hand-rendered family Christmas cards every year, and later in life, fashioning colorful Christmas ornaments made of egg cartons in her third-floor studio. In 1977, McNeil co-founded the Philadelphia Museum of Art Craft Show, which through the years raised upwards of $14 million for the benefit of the museum and its craft programming. 
She loved animals, especially her beloved poodles, Martini and Misty. She was an expert at silliness. McNeil was extremely proud of her family history and was a sixth-generation daughter of the American Revolution and a member of the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America. End quote. Just like John K. Smith and Clayton French and the Wyeth brothers, the McNeil Empire started as a corner drugstore in Philadelphia, which grew to be an international conglomerate. During the 1990s, the McNeils moved their family from Laurel Hill East to a plot at Laurel Hill West on what I informally call Billionaire's Row. It's in the Devon section. It's right across the street from the Franconia section. Some of their nearby neighbors are Ralph and Suzanne Roberts of Comcast, Ed Snyder of Philadelphia Flyers fame, the Dorrance family of Campbell's Soup fame, there's a lovely garden with a bench to sit and ponder behind their monument. More than 25 billion doses of acetaminophen are sold yearly, with an estimate that its sales will reach $16 billion by 2032. In this and in many other ways, the McNeil family's influence on the city will be felt for centuries. January edition of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, I will tell you of a giant of Philadelphia orchestral and choral music who has been mostly forgotten. Henry Gordon Thunder was a founder of the Choral Society of Philadelphia and the Thunder Orchestra, which was a precursor to the Philadelphia Orchestra. When the Philadelphia Orchestra started, it took many of its members from Henry Thunder's orchestra. Expect this podcast on January 15th. The February episode of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories is for Black History Month. Sarah A. Anderson spent 17 years in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives advocating for the rights of children, women, minorities, and the impaired. Winnie Harris was a civic activist who advocated for green spaces in the city and personally planted hundreds of trees during her lifetime. Samuel Evans was a civil rights leader known among the black community as the Godfather. And Laverne Sims was the sister of John Africa and a former member of the radical group MOVE. All four are interred at Laurel Hill West. 
and you will hear their stories in the February episode of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. Laurel Hill East is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1N61. Admission to the cemetery is free, as is parking in the lot across the street, although spaces are very limited. There is an app that you can download for a self-guided tour through its 78 acres. Laurel Hill West is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakinwood, with parking at the main entrance and at the Bell Tower. Your best bet for public transportation? Take Scepter Regional Rail to Maniunk, or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue. Then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge. Come up Writers Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. You can download a couple of audios I have done for self-guided tours at Laurel Hill West. Each of them will lead you to a 40 to 45 minute audio tour. Talks about the people interred along the route through the cemetery. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West are currently open from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. It's a beautiful place to walk your dog, ride your bicycle, take some photographs, maybe paint something, go bird watching. Bird watchers love Laurel Hill. If you're a nature buff, if you're a tree and plant lover, if you're a skateboarder, and we welcome strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. If you follow us on Instagram and Facebook, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. You can also follow All Bones Considered on Instagram and Facebook and something called TikTok. Uh, once, once you've fallen in love with these hot spots, become a friend of Laurel Hill. You'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours each year, including at least one inside the mausoleum visit, which always fills up. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. The key to finding the gift shop online, click on support and then find the gift shop in the left-hand column. That's at laurelhillphl.com. Our theme song, Names at Peace, was written and performed by local artist James Harrell. All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories and Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, are researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University. And you can reach me through my email. I would love to hear from you, joe at joelex.net. Again, I would ask you to leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. It just helps the algorithm. It just helps things move up a little bit so other people can find it. I remind you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. Stick around. You can hear the references that I use for this podcast. Until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. I used a lot of references for this. Uh, Several books, several articles, lots of online sources. One that's kind of fun, even though it's very old, it's called Devils, Drugs, and Doctors by Howard W. Haggard, 
MD, the story of the science of healing from medicine man to doctor. My copy is crumbling to dust. <laughs> My copy is first printing 1946, although the book itself was published in 1929 by Harper and Brothers. 1946 is when they started doing pocketbooks, or uh, what we now know as paperback books. Another book that was incredibly useful is called The First Century of the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy, 1829-1929. It was published by the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy and Science. Joseph W. England was editor, and uh, several people who were buried at Laurel Hill were on the committee of the historical volume. This is copyright 1922 by the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy and Science. I found it as a PDF at archive.org, which is an incredibly useful resource for the type of research that I do. There's an article called The Evolution of the American Pharmaceutical Industry. Author John P. Swan with two N's. Source, Pharmacy in History. 1995, volume 37, number 2, pages 76 to 86. From History of Pharmacy to Pharmaceutical History, author is Elizabeth Siegel Watkins. The source on that, also Pharmacy in History, 2009, volume 51, number 1, pages 3 through 13. The Emergence of Pharmaceutical Science. Author, John Periscandola, Pharmacy and History, 1995, Volume 37, Number 2, pages 68 to 75. Scientific Ambitions, The Pharmaceutical Industry, 1900 to 1920. Author is Jonathan M. Liebenau. Source, Pharmacy and History, 1985, Volume 27, Number 1, pages 3 to 11. The Medical Profession and Patent and Proprietary Medicines During the 19th Century, David L. Dykstra. Source, Bulletin of the History of Medicine, September-October 1955, Volume 29, Number 5, pages 401 to 419. And finally, Pharmaceutical Manufacturing in America, A Brief History. Arthur Damrich, D-A-E-M-M-R-I-C-H, Pharmacy and History, Volume 59, Number 3, 2017, pages 63 to 72. For Smith, Klein, and French, there's an article called The Metamorphosis, which is spelled wrong. I just noticed that. Uh, they misspelled metamorphosis. Metamorphosis of Smith, Klein, and French Laboratories to Smith, Klein, Beecham. So it's a partial history, 1925 to 1998. Uh, three authors on that. Glenn E. Ulyat, U-L-L-Y-O-T, Barbara Hudson Ulyat, and Leo B. Slater. That was in the Bulletin of the History of Chemistry, Volume 25, Number 1. 2000, pages 16 through 20. The early pharmacopoeia, the early PDR, if you will, is also from archive.org. It's called Elegant Pharmaceutical Preparations, Compressed Hypodermic Tablets, 
compressed powders or pills, and mechanical fluid extracts manufactured by John Wyeth and Brother Philadelphia with quantitative composition. That was published in Philadelphia. George F. Lesher, steam printer, 605 and 607 Arch Street, dated 1882. That was surpassed within a few years by Warner's Therapeutic Reference Book. The title page of this says William R. Warner and Company, manufacturing pharmaceutists, makers of soluble coated pills, granules, and parvules, standard fluid extracts, compressed tablets, tablet triturates, hypodermic tablets, Gran F. Salts, I'm not sure what that is, medicinal wines, elixirs, and syrups, physicians and hospital supplies, a leading specialty, 1228 Market Street, Philadelphia, 52 Maiden Lane, New York, 197 Randolph Street, Chicago. My copy is the 8th edition, published in 1896. For the McNeil family, there is a brief article from McNeil Consumer Healthcare Company, History of Tylenol, Early Beginnings. There's not a date on it. It's a little seven-page summary of the initial discovery, development of acetaminophen, and then McNeil's involvement in bringing it to market and how that worked. And then something that I was so happy to find. A transcript of an interview with Robert L. McNeil, Jr., by the Chemical Heritage Foundation. Mary Ellen Bowden and Arnold Thackeray did the interview at Philadelphia and at Winmore on 13 and 30 August 2001 and 15 August 2002. It is a very comprehensive interview with Mr. McNeil. And it is available for free online from the Chemical Heritage Foundation. Just invaluable information. Okay, I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope that you come back for more or go back for more. We now have about 80 podcasts out there about both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West. So, hope to see you around the cemetery. If not, I'll catch you the next podcast. Stay safe, stay well.